Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. Today's guest is Rhonda McGee. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Warner Brothers, who just came out with a powerful new film, Just Mercy. I love reading a book or seeing a film that changes my perspective on the world we live in. I felt that way the first time I read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and I'm so excited that his story has been made into an extraordinary feature film starring Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, and Brie Larson. The movie is based on Brian's life. He's a true American hero. As a civil rights lawyer, Brian has brought much needed compassion, dignity, and mercy to our criminal justice system. He's liberated more than 100 people from death row, proving their innocence in the process, and to this day, he continues to fight bravely for the disadvantaged and disenfranchised. You cannot watch this film without feeling empathy for the people being portrayed on the screen and a deep gratitude for what Brian has done to make our society more just for all of us. So go see Just Mercy. It's in select theaters on Christmas Day and everywhere on January 10th. Get your tickets now. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Rhonda McGee is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco and is internationally recognized for her work in integrating mindfulness into higher education, law, and social change. She's also the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice. Rhonda was about to give up her career in law because she felt like she wasn't able to bring her full self to her job. But before quitting, she took pause and discovered that by incorporating mindfulness and meditation into the workplace, it opened up a whole world of possibility. 
Today, we're talking about the ways meditation brought change to the difficult questions of racial justice, among many other things. Rhonda explains that when we find ways to reframe our thinking, we often find new solutions for the problems we thought we couldn't solve. This isn't about pacifying and only allowing certain emotions. It's saying, you're human. We get to feel the whole range of emotions. So recognize I am having a feeling here. What is it? Accept it. One other thing. Our chat took place on stage at Incube Health outside San Francisco this year. So apologies if you hear a tiny bit of background noise. Okay, let's get to my chat with Rhonda McGee. We were talking backstage about how it's our job, all of us collectively, to have what can be uncomfortable conversations, right? And I know, particularly as women, we always want to get everything right and be perfect and know what to say and have the answers. And sometimes that's not possible as we navigate these new waters. You write... Because there are so many rivers of pain joining and forming the ocean of racial suffering in our times, personal awareness practices are essential for racial justice work. In order for real change to occur, we must be able to examine our own experiences, discover the situated nature of our perspectives, and understand the ways in which race and racism are mere cultural constructions. So I know that you started in law. Like, how did you, how did you get here? <laughs> How did I get here? So as you mentioned, yes, I'm a law professor, but when I think of that question, it reminds me of there are so many different answers and so many different talk about rivers within the ocean that explain how any of us arrives. For me, I think about the fact that I was born in Kinston, North Carolina, a small town. It was actually about 50,000 people when I was born. It's now about 20-some thousand, so it's one of those small de-industrializing towns in the south. It is a place where the legacies of our history around white supremacist, patriarchal, kind of Christian-centric racial capitalism are like really present, right? So, and I'm going to just go ahead and do this. I always, lately, I feel it's very, you know, particularly important to name the length of time we've been on the planet as women, especially, you know, sort of the way dominant culture suggests women never talk about our age. This is already a way of practicing with being real about where we are. I was born in 1967. <laughs> so I was born in this, this year, which was the last year of Martin Luther King's life on the planet. Mm-hmm. So when I was born in August, he was still up and thriving and helping catalyze this movement for social change, which we have all been the beneficiaries of. And by the time I turned one year old, he had already been assassinated. And so my life then was very much inflected by having been born in that particular period of change and transformation. And so born in this town in North Carolina, which was still quite segregated, still, again, as I mentioned, bearing the legacies of our history in a very present sense kind of way, I witnessed my grandmother, who had been born a couple generations ago in 1906, in a period that many people realize is like one of the harshest kind of post-slavery periods. It's a period of a lot of lynchings. It's a period of a lot of reinstitutionalization of white supremacy where, and, and patriarchal white supremacy. So women like my grandmother had almost no opportunities. So she was only able to attend school up until the second or third grade. She basically had to work as a sh- in the fields of tobacco fields of North Carolina for tobacco industries as a young girl. 
And by the time I was born in 1967, she was this really strong and loving figure who I, as a very little girl, when my parents were having problems in their marriage, we spent a lot of time at my grandmother's small house. And I would wake up early in the morning and notice there's a light coming out from underneath the door of her room. And we somehow had gotten the message that when Grandma, Grandma Nan's in her room and that you see that light on in the morning, that's her time and her space. And I later came to realize she was doing her own kind of centering, Mm -hmm. her own kind of practice for knowing her own worth and value, despite this difficult life she had lived, and despite the fact that she, unlike me, would continue to have very challenging work experiences. In fact, at that same period, while she was getting up and preparing herself for the day by doing her own, for her, it was Christian-based, centering prayer. She would spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes in that space and then come out, do reading of scripture as best she could, very slowly, because again, not well-educated in a formal sense, very dedicated to reading scripture every day to help center herself. And then she would prepare the food and get us off out for the different parts of the day for me, preschool, and then go to her job, which was cleaning houses, or cleaning this one house. Every day uh, of the week, she was going to the house of this family. Their last name was the Outlaw family, believe it or not. But this is a white, racialized family for whom my grandmother was serving as like this, you know, well, let's just say, those of us who live in homes now know You don't actually need somebody to come and clean your house from nine to five every day. That is a legacy, as I said before, of that entire white supremacist patriarchal kind of culture, racial caste and class culture. My grandmother was very much, in other words, relegated when I was born in 67, so early 70s, 1970s, to the kind of jobs that would have been available to a person like her in a slave society. Like, those were the options. Fast forward to me, I'm here. I'm here as a part, I think, in part as a manifestation of the fact that in our society, change can happen. We know this. Real, radical change has happened. It's how I got here. It's how Michelle and Barack got where they got. It's a legacy of the work of our, you know, maybe some of our parents, our grandparents, people who who actually fought for change in collaboration, right? A multiracial multi-class struggle for justice is how I got here in a certain sense. So I went to um, the University of Virginia. I studied law. I studied sociology in the graduate school there. So I studied how people manage conflict. And I actually, I did, I did training in the military. I did all kinds of things, became a military army officer along the way, really trying to take advantage of all the opportunities that my mother and grandmother had not had an opportunity to. What I found after I'd finished law school, finished my master's in sociology, finished, you know, becoming an army officer, and relocated to San Francisco in 1993 to start my first law job, was that I had all of this capacity up here. I really trained to, you know, take advantage of these opportunities, be a young lawyer working at the, you know, in the Embarcaderos and downtown on Market Street in San Francisco. I realized, though, I had trained for lots of things, but not for staying in contact with my values, not for really knowing how to speak my truth, not for managing all the stress and all the, you know, discombobulation that comes with moving from the South to 
California, become going into the male-dominated profession of law, being the only woman of color, the only lawyer of color at the time when I was hired there in a firm of an office of about 70 lawyers. And so what I'm saying is I had all of these difficult, stressful things happening, the rivers of conflict coming in for me, and I realized I needed some way of staying grounded. And so that's why when I turned to meditation, embodied practices, yoga, journaling, deepening kind of a practice for regularly checking in with myself. And so it started for me with really just trying to help myself heal and be in a position to make the most of the opportunities that I had, which while there were opportunities on the one hand, they were, they were difficult, right? I knew yeah. it was going to be difficult. And so meditation and these embodied practices helped me. And at a certain point, I started to realize they were also helping me deal with the particular pieces that had to do with social identity-based difficulty. I, I practiced law for about four and a half years and started teaching at the University of San Francisco, where I'm still a law professor there after 21 years. And I was teaching classes around race and law. And I realized that to be able to semester after semester, year after year with different groups of young people in the Bay Area, not always young, young, but young in spirit, new law students, to sit down and look at, you know, the law by which we took the land from the indigenous population, native folks, folks from what used to be south of the border as we moved the border south and took over this property. What was the law that enabled that? The law that enabled slavery and enslavement. The law that enabled the Exclusionary Act period and later um, Japanese internment and so on and so on. Looking at that every year, week to week with different students is not easy either. Mm. And so I realized the practices that I'd relied on for my own self-healing and centering and grounding were also what were helping me sit every semester with these hard facts and have difficult conversations around a table with increasingly and differently diverse groups of folk, young people, older people, right? Folks who were coming to the to law field, wanting to be able to make a good difference here in the Bay Area, but realizing that to do that, given the diversity and the times that we're in, we needed to do some self-awareness. We needed to understand our history a little bit better. We needed to understand how race and racism runs through even systems like law. Mm -hmm. And so doing all that's not easy. And so if I was regularly relying on my practices. And at a certain point, I was like, I need to be able to take this to my students. Mm -hmm. Like, they're suffering. We get to a point in the semester and they're depressed. They're like, again, right now we got to, how come I didn't know about this thing in American history? How come I didn't know about this? And it's hard, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Wait, so to face our history to face how we got here with all the separations that divide and rank us, keep make it hard for us to find common ground and feel like our communities can come together. To really face that takes some stamina, yeah. right? People talk about fragility, it takes some kind of stamina. And so I really started to say, I've got to bring this in. And yet when I went to the law school at the University of Virginia, there was nobody trying to, like, there were barely classes about race and law. And certainly there was nobody saying, oh, let's pause, check in with our bodies and breath. <laughs> let's do some loving kindness practice to help us be able to look at each other and keep, keep coming back. And so I didn't have a model for it. Mm -hmm. And so I basically was really trying to decide, should I stay in law? 
because, you know, I had actually gotten tenure, I'd done all the kind of traditional things, published, but I hadn't been able to really do that in a way that accommodated my whole, my sense of what was called for to really do this well. So meditation, compassion practices. Mm -hmm. So I was going through this period of, I was like, maybe I need to leave law because I've done it, I've gotten tenure, and yet it doesn't feel like success because I don't feel like my whole self is here. So I actually then went to, uh, I was also going through a divorce, going through a lot of life challenges actually, because how many of us, right, trying to do it all, trying to become a tenured law professor with a new marriage, wanting at that time to have kids in my late 20s, early 30s, found out I was infertile, couldn't have the kids, marriage was having difficulty, gonna stay in law, got tenure, even as the marriage fell away. So, but that was a lot to deal with psychologically. And while in the middle of it realizing, if I'm gonna stay in law, I gotta be able to bring more of myself in, I felt, I might need some counseling help. Yeah. So I went and had the support of a good therapist. And this was the best, some of the best career advice I've ever had, maybe the best. She looked at me as I was saying, you know what? I feel like I need to do something different in law. I feel like I, I can make a better contribution if I can bring some of these inner resource practices in. And I, I feel like I need to leave law. And she said, Rhonda, you can always quit your job in a city, San Francisco, where many people would kill to have a regular tenured position that you've worked so hard for. You can always quit it. That option is always there. But what about if, before quitting it, you pause and you see if it's possible to bring more of yourself in? See if it's possible. What if, it's, what if it is? What if this idea that you have to leave law to be more yourself isn't completely true? And so that was like an aha moment for me. I went back to the school, talked to the powers that be, and realized there was some room there for me to develop a course that would include more of these practices mm -hmm. and to start writing articles that would talk about how to bring meditation to lawyers and how to bring meditation to questions of racial justice and that I could publish those things and I would still have a job and I could collaborate with other people. Turns out there were other people on the faculty, our alumni, who also were like, I went to the University of San Francisco School of Law, I graduated, I passed the bar, why did nobody teach me how to sustain myself? Practices for sustainability. So we were having other people say, we do need to do something different. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have realized that was possible had I not gone through that difficult struggle and figured out a way to rather than leave, you know, that profession, mm -hmm. drop anchor and deepen and bring something, something new from yeah. that experience. And that's how I did it. We'll get back to Rhonda McGee in just a second. One of my career highlights was interviewing Brian Stevenson for this podcast. Brian is a civil rights lawyer and social justice activist. He's led incredibly important work to confront and overcome racial inequality and has fought tirelessly for much needed criminal justice reform. Brian's life has been turned into a feature film and I couldn't think of a more deserving story to be told on screen. The film, Just Mercy, centers around one of Brian's earliest clients, a man named Walter McMillan, who was arrested and falsely convicted of murder in 1987. In the movie, Brian is played by Michael B. Jordan and Walter by Jamie Foxx. 
There are so many extraordinary components to the film and what Brian has been able to achieve and inspire in a legal system that has too often failed to act with compassion and too often failed to find justice. This is a story that will change the way you think about our justice system. It will make you question whether any of us can really have freedom if all of us don't. And most importantly, it will remind you that we're all human, that we share so much in common, and that even in our darkest hours, there can be room for hope and redemption. Just Mercy is in select theaters on Christmas Day and everywhere on January 10th. Get tickets now. And in the meantime, I hope you'll take a look at Brian's work and you can check out my conversation with him on the Goop podcast. Here at Goop, sex is one of our favorite topics to talk about. On this podcast and over on the Goop site, we spend a lot of time asking questions and thinking about women's sexuality. There's still so much shame around sexuality, particularly for women, when it really is one of our greatest life forces. From talking to many women and therapists, doctors, and sexuality educators, we've seen that there are so many ways to express our sexuality. And for some, lingerie is a part of that, even if no one else is going to see it. Flirt Em All, founded by Jennifer Zuccarini, is a women's lingerie and ready-to-wear brand that has been stocked in the Goop sex shop forever. Jennifer's mission is to support a woman's strength, confidence, and sexuality with fiercely feminine lingerie and clothing. She believes in celebrating the art of dressing up and undressing. Each Fleur de Mal piece is beautiful. They're made with high-quality, luxurious fabrics like French Lever's lace and silk, and the brand designs everything from silk tuxedo pants to slinky dresses, one-piece bathing suits, and bras. To shop it all and get 15% off site-wide, head to fleurdemal.com and use Fleur Loves Goop. That's F-L-E-U-R-L-O-V-E-S-G-O-O-P. Back to my chat with Rhonda McGee. It seems more essential than ever than you, that you stay in law because that's where so much of this continues to sort of bring forth all of the injustice that we have in society. And it's also the reckoning place, right, for people to sit across the table and say, I have been, this is how I have benefited yeah. dramatically yeah. from this systemic racism and this is how I have suffered. And for people to be able to feel that yes. in their body and then process it yes. and change it. It's true. Yeah. I mean, so what is that process as you're having these and you, within your book, you talk about these moments of, there's one very powerful moment where this white man, you've gathered people together to have conversations about race and he is so deeply uncomfortable, almost to the point of tears. And he's like, I just really want to run away. Yeah. And a black woman is like, is crying. And she's like, the fact that you can that you can run away is the problem. Like, I cannot run away. This is my life. So how do you, what are the strategies for those, for having those conversations and keeping, you know, butts in seats Mm -hmm. to do the work? Yeah. Well, let me just pause and just as we, as you reflect on that moment and, and describe that, for me, a lot starts to happen right in my body to hear that again, just to hear there was this conversation, white racialized man, uh, woman of color. And by the way, I say racialized, and I can say racialized black woman, right, as a way to just remind us that these are not discoverable facts in nature, so to speak, but we've created these things. <laughs> we've created these ways of thinking about ourselves and identifying ourselves and looking at each other through these lenses. Well, when I talk about those things and write about those things, I, I, for me, things come up. 
memories of difficult conversations, that one, mm-hmm. that I've witnessed in many, many over the years. And how, much, how, how often is that true for us? When somebody starts talking about a difficult conversation about race, how many of us also recall some moment in our lives where we tried to have a conversation or where something went awry? Mm-hmm. Maybe we've lost you know, lost it in a conversation, got ourselves a little bit emotionally dysregulated or been on the receiving end of some of that. Maybe we've had difficulties with relationships, friendships, family members, especially in this moment where we're in a wave of resurgence of frankly racist kind of, well, under the guise of what's called white nationalism for, you know, for many this sort of new neo-race racialization and, and sort of um, invitation to kind of stand strong in your biases, mm-hmm. right? So we're in a moment, in other words, such that when um, we describe a conversation like this, all of us know something about what you're mentioning here. That is to say, we've all been in these difficult conversations. We've felt the reverberations of the challenges that I'm describing here, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, a lot of my work then has been about really looking at more and more nuanced ways of grounding myself Mm -hmm. and others in embodied awareness to support staying with that difficulty, right? So meditation practices, mindfulness meditation, those practices, right, which are really about really becoming more comfortable in your own skin, frankly, right? Noticing what's happening when we are experiencing a moment of discomfort, okay? And so if you think about it, this this moment that you just described and all of the moments that might come up as we think about these are just examples of difficult moments of what in meditation we might call some kind of suffering, some kind of, we're unhappy, we're, we're uncomfortable. We kind of either want things to be a little bit different somehow, we want to avoid something that's coming at us, or we kind of stand in a fog of some kind of confusion, right? The sort of three ways that we make ourselves unhappy in the traditional discourse of mindfulness and meditation. So for me, it's, it, it's, it's really about recognizing that these basic practices of mindfulness meditation that many of us have now been introduced to in some way are really beautiful instruments, if you will, for helping support us when, when, when this kind of interpersonal difficulty is right there coming at us. Mm-hmm. So rather than yielding to the temptation of just getting out of the room, avoiding the conversation, being numb, the many, just think, we all have many different strategies for navigating a world where at any moment some of this could come at us. Just pause for a second, reflect. Is that true? Is that true for you? Is it true for each of us? That we have strategies. And again, the diversity in the room, right? There's, mm-hmm. For every human being, there's different ways that we you know, navigate all of this. And so that for me, mindfulness practices create capacity for really sitting with deep increase. Mm-hmm deep questioning of ourselves around like, what is it like for me? I was thinking, I'm thinking of a conversation, I do workshops, of course, around this now all over the country, actually in in different parts of the world even. And one I did not too long ago in, in, uh, in LA, invited this conversation amongst people who were training to be meditation teachers. 
Okay, so more and more my work is being brought right to meditation teachers and creating spaces for them to really look at, wait, how does the body scan meditation, a loving kindness meditation, basic sitting practice, and all of the trainings that go with that, how, how can that really be a nice, I'm putting my hand out like this, like underneath ourselves, like a nice support for the, some discomfort almost dipping into trauma in some cases that can come up when we move to these issues. And in that particular kind of this one I'm thinking of in LA where, where I was recently involved, involved in a training, uh, a white racialized man just said, I had an aha moment in this, in this session. Because as you had to slow down and pause and check out what's happening in our bodies when the topic of race and racism comes up, when we're reflecting on a difficult moment in a conversation, I noticed something I hadn't seen in myself, which is normally when someone asks me what I know about racism, I'll say, I don't know anything about it because I haven't seen it and it's not my experience. You know, this is a, you know, a white man in his maybe early 30s. And so he really, so he was, we created this space where he could admit that often his response is, I don't know nothing, this isn't, my, this isn't me. I don't know anything about this. I haven't seen much racism. But what he was able to say with the support of, again, the spacious holding of, like, it's okay to, like, acknowledge what is true and in a, as non-judgmental a way as possible, just sort of recognize, accept what is happening, investigate what's happening, and just be with it. This kind of way of holding reality created enough space for this young, this young man to say, What I'm realizing is, it's not that I don't know anything about racism or that I haven't seen it, it's that I actively try to avoid it and go numb to it. Mm-hmm. That's a very subtle, very subtle, like, again, I said, how do we na- navigate a world? What, is our, what are our own set of tricks, if you will, for moving to a world where this stuff is, is present? Each of us have, we all have different ways of, of navigating that. And he was basically saying, I'm noticing one of my ways. Mm-hmm. is just to kind of go numb and avoid. And I realize the story I tell myself is I don't see it. But there's a difference between I don't see it and I'm not, I'm not willing to see it. That's a huge, it's, does that sound like a subtle thing on the one hand, but also kind of a huge thing on the mm-hmm. other? So that's an example then of how, for me, you know, these practices support me. And I have it in my own life, of course. Right? Because I think we're all works in progress on this. You know, we are in a time and a place where we're constantly being trained and retrained in the next group that we should think of as us versus them and that we should be afraid of or we should put up a barrier to, et cetera, et cetera. So just all of us, I mean, I'm not somehow accepted or exempted from this as a you know, black racialized woman in America, right? So for me, when I notice my ear you know, recognizing as it did when I first moved to California and had not heard a lot of different languages spoken around me. Mm-hmm. So growing up in North Carolina, I was sort of trained and formed to be most comfortable around English and not that comfortable when I would hear a different kind of language spoken. And, and so I didn't realize that was part of my training and upbringing until I moved to California and had now what I see as the great benefit of walking down the street and having people speak different languages. But so where I am now with that, being able to say, thank goodness, 
you know, I am able every day to be reminded that I live in a diverse, internationalized world. When I first arrived, it was like I could feel in my body, like, wait, where, who, what is this language? You know? And so that's me recognizing the biases that I imbibed growing up in North Carolina. And rec- we call it bias. It's an embodied experience. It's a stiffening. It's a tightening. It's, some, it's something like this. Different for all of us, right? And so mindfulness thing can help, right? It can help put that soft hand of support beneath any one of us when we're getting triggered, as we might have been in this conversation so far, right? Yeah. But it's putting that, giving us a little bit of support so that we recognize we're human. We have all been formed, and I often say formed and deformed by the systems we've been raised in and that are now in us. Like, it's all very fluid and very iterative. And mindfulness practices, deep mindfulness practices, help create greater capacity for holding complexity, the both ands of our lives. So like, it's both a beautiful experience to be learning amongst a multicultural, diverse group of people from all around the world, and it can make us feel uncomfortable. It can make us feel like maybe we don't belong. It can make us feel like, you know, I will be rejected by this group or that group. All of that is true. So mindfulness for me then comes in as a support for holding complexity and noticing when there's a temptation perhaps, because I'm human, to close down my heart or to avoid or to run away or to go into a fog of, you know, confusion. Instead, it's a support for being here, Mm -hmm. for realizing that this is the one life as far as we know, maybe you all have some greater inside knowledge, but as far as I know, this is the one life we have. How do we want to live this life? And actually, back to the, the point you were raising as well about law being a place where we can look at what it means to reckon with what we're up against. Yes, these practices support us in that. Yes, law for me, and education generally, because I'm a law professor, is about stepping up to the challenge of sitting in difficult conversation. Whether it's a classroom, a courtroom, a law firm where somebody's come in and said, this thing happened to me, is there a remedy? A Congress or legislature that's saying, oh, this thing has happened to people across the country, are there remedies? This is all about having ever more difficult conversations with greater capacity to hear from the voices who are affected and to notice what might get in the way of hearing some voices and create more spaciousness so you can really begin to approximate what justice looks like. So this is, to me, all about then deepening our capacity to live together in ways that are sustainable, given the great challenges of our time. We're going to take a quick break. I'm trying to teach my kids good habits early on, which is inadvertently making me want to keep up with my own good habits, like brushing our teeth. Self-care doesn't get any more basic than good oral care, and oral care always begins with a really great toothbrush. The Quip Electric Toothbrush is designed to make good habits simple. 
It uses sensitive sonic vibrations with a built-in timer and 30-second pulses to make sure you're getting a thorough clean. Here's my favorite part. The Quip Floss Dispenser comes with pre-marked string to help you use just enough. For some reason, I'm one of those people that has no idea how much floss to use. Another perk is that Quip delivers a fresh brush head, floss, and toothpaste refills to your door every three months with free shipping, so you can cross that item off your grocery list for good. Quip even has a toothbrush for kids. It's the same technology, just tweaked for smaller size mouths. You can get your own Quip toothbrush today, starting at $25. Head to getquip.com goop to save on gift sets and to get your first refill free with a refill plan. That's a first refill free at getquip.com goop. Head to getquip.com goop. Quip, the good habits company. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. And now back to today's conversation. You ran through it really quickly, but I want to call it out. You sort of did rain within that. Mm. So can you sort of take us through what rain Rain stands for and sort of how to bring it into our own bodies? Absolutely. Thank you, Elise. There are a number of teachers of meditation and mindfulness who use this acronym, a teaching acronym called RAIN, R-A-I-N. So the R... It's a way of basically, let me just say what it is before I go through each of them. It's a kind of approximation for like, in a nutshell, this is what mindfulness might do for any one of us. Okay, so R, recognize. So if mindfulness meditation is about mm, being present in the world with a certain kind of friendly openness to reality, to relating to what is happening in the here and now, with some openness and some spaciousness, right? With intentionality. So sometimes we use the shorthand, mindfulness is paying attention on purpose with kind of, frankly, love, like the kind of kindness that you hope you can meet the difficulties of our lives with. All right, so then that requires the paying attention part, attending to our lives. What's happening? Mm -hmm. So R, recognize. The acronym of RAIN begins, like meditation then in a nutshell is recognizing, A, R, recognize, A, accepting what's happening at the moment. Now, this is not accepting it forever. We will sometimes decide, we see this and we want to like, we think this shouldn't be happening, so we got a response. But the idea is you don't want to be in a sort of a resistance of reality place, right? You first need to accept it long enough to see what you're dealing with, mm-hmm. even if you want to make a change. So mindfulness helps us do that. See it, recognize it. Ah, take a deep breath. Accept, I'm feeling discomfort. 
I'm feeling sadness. I'm feeling rage, right? This isn't about pacifying and only allowing certain emotions. It's saying, you're human. We get to feel the whole range of emotions. So recognize I am having a feeling here. What is it? Accept it for now. What it is is I'm feeling some anger. I'm feeling some sadness. I'm feeling some grief. An often under-acknowledged reaction and um, emotion, if you will, complex of emotions in these times, some grief. So recognize, accept what is here. The I, R-A-I of RAIN. Investigate. So mm, I might not have the word grief right away, but if I pause long enough to check in, notice, recognize what's happening, I'm feeling some tightness in the belly. I'm feeling some kind of nausea, or I'm feeling some sense of sinking in my belly. You know, the different ways we feel stuff as we're moving through the world. The eye and rain is an invitation to investigate. What is that really? So if I'm feeling the sadness, what's underneath the sadness? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if I'm feeling anger or rage, which is often something that can come up around these issues of identity-based suffering. Somebody is assaulted as a woman of color or a trans person or you know, a white male who is um, you know, being baited into some new form of, um, of invitation to us against them. We're being baited often these days and tempted, especially with technology, right? And so often the, the energy is kind of an intense, maybe it's anger, maybe it's rage, maybe it's fear, but often fear is underneath something like anger or rage. And so this investigation or grief is underneath it, sadness, a sense of frustration, a sense of like, I don't know what to do with this, these changes in my environment. So that investigation of RAIN is just about pausing, taking some deep breaths, and inviting an inquiry, like, what's going on? Why am I so angry? And here's a good question if you're working with anger in particular, that folks who study nonviolent communication and emotional awareness tell us is really helpful. Often anger, rage, is tied, if you investigate it, to a sense that something I value, something that's really important to me, is being trampled on. Does that make some sense? Like, if you're really intensely triggered, it's often, like, if I look underneath this, it's not just I'm just upset and mad. It, I can pause long enough and investigate. It's like, oh, I really value human dignity or respect for women or, you know, respect for safety, physical safety, right? And investigating what's underneath the rage can help us then articulate more clearly our values. Isn't that important if we then want to be able to be in conversation politically or legally about what to do next, right? So that we're not just in blind rage, but we're like, this is what I'm upset about, and here's why. And here's what I think we need to do. Here's why I think this violates all our values. Here's how I think we can get into a common conversation about why we together might want to do this differently. So recognizing, accepting, investigating, and then the end of the RAIN acronym, to finish it out, is the invitation to do all of that as best we can with, I hesitate here because there's a couple of ways of thinking about it. Non-identification is the way the, the woman, Michelle McDonald, I'd like to name the woman teacher based in Hawaii right now, a woman who came up with this RAIN acronym first, okay? 
She, offered, she used the, the idea of um, non-identification as the end of reign. And by that, she meant, okay, do this thing of recognizing, accepting, investigating, but try to do it in such a way that you don't make a new story out of your reign moment. Like, oh, I realized I'm really angry about such and such. And then the temptation might be to go around telling everybody how either angry you are or how enlightened you are because you saw your anger and now you're this enlightened person, <laughs> whatever it is. Or you saw your privilege and now I'm a privileged person. I got to really work on my privilege. Also. Pause. <laughs> Do that. But with non-identification, meaning don't make a new story that you've now fused your identity to mm -hmm. about that moment. Life is full of moments, thank goodness. And so mindfulness then comes in to support a kind of a fluid movement with the dynamism of what it means to be fully alive so that you can recognize, accept, investigate, ha, breathe, and let go, and then maybe invite this sort of inquiry into, all right, I was reacting, feeling triggered, feeling anger, feeling a wave of something, Mindfulness helps us move from stimulated reactivity, right? Something happened, I read something online, I saw a tweet, I'm reacting, to reflecting, choosing how to respond from a range of available options. I can respond with a fiery retweet, which <clears throat> I can pick up a phone and call and vent. I can spread, spew this out. I can go to some particular person that reminds me of what's, what, right? I can, or I can recognize that this is reminding me of some very painful incident in my own history. I can look at the healing I need to do. I can think then about how I really want to, based on my values, address this issue in the world with other people who share those values. You see, so it gives us what I like to think of as positive pathways, right, pathways for transformation. Um, once we begin to be able to see more clearly and with more capaciousness, right, we hear this term fragility, especially white fragility, this idea that when, when these issues come up, some of us, especially people who have been racialized as white and often cisgendered female, right, where there's a lot of training about, like, we're supposed to you know, be okay, not rock the boat, not get angry, not get into fights and conflicts, right? All of us get some different trainings around this stuff. And what scholars like Robin DiAngelo, who's written the book, White Fragility, and done these talks about white fragility, what she helps us understand is that's a kind of conditioned reactivity mm -hmm. to discomfort. And of course, you can see then mindfulness can come in to help with what's called white fragility or fragility. And I'll say, there's all kinds of, there are many different kinds of fragility. White fragility is one that's put out there on a banner in a book. But actually, we know all of us can be conditioned into kind of the reactivity to discomfort that can come up around a lot of these things in our lives. So if we see what's called fragility, uh, fragilities of various sorts, as suffering in our time, in our lives, then we can see how meditation, mindfulness, compassion practices can help us. The RAIN practice and related kinds of practices can help us notice when we're getting, moving in a space that some people might call fragility. Pause, recognize it, accept that's what's happening, investigate where it's coming from. Oh, I've been trained not to notice racism, or I've been trained to turn away from this conversation, or to defend against it, or to deny it, whatever it is. Hmm. 
investigate a little bit more, where do you get that training? I grew up in a certain kind of world, with certain kind of household, with certain kind, right? Naturally, we've been formed in certain ways. Investigate it with, I often say with compassion, with self-compassion, because we're going to be learning some things that are hard for us sometimes to see, right? Self-compassion. But again, not then attaching, oh, I'm the person who's got a, big, a lot of baggage, blah, blah, blah. It's like, whew, I learned something. Ideally, then, I can now choose a pathway to transformation in light of what I've seen. I don't have to be always that person who was raised not to know how to deal with uncomfortable moments. Mm -hmm. I can actually be in a rich, what I call communities of practice. So this, to me, is like an extemporaneous, temporary community of practice, because we're here right now thinking about and looking at how do we do this? And how might mindfulness and compassion practices come in for each of us right here, right now, and ongoingly to support engaging with these difficult topics. So yeah, R-A-I-N. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Rhonda McGee. For more, head to rondavmcgee.com. That's R-H-O-N-D-A-V-M-A-G-E-E. And check out a copy of her book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, available now. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. What gives you the greatest sense of accomplishment at the end of the day, asks Carla. That's a great question. You know, I think when I, when I go home at the end of a work day and my kids are content and my husband is content and I guess it's really like when the people around me seem good, I don't know that I should feel accomplished, but I guess I just feel, I kind of feel like, oh, I'm doing my job as a, as a mom and as a wife. And, and I think too, like as a working mother, you know, at the end of a long day of work, when you feel like you're aligned with your coworkers and, you know, you feel like you've moved the ball a little further down the field, that, that gives me a good sense of accomplishment too, at the end of the day. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.